Glad you're here, and if you're watching online, thanks for being part of what we're doing this morning. I'm going to ask you to go to uh, John chapter 1, if you would. You know, immediately you're thinking, oh, what happened to Romans? Well, we're taking a couple weeks away from Romans, yeah. coming into Christmas, and you're going to see how this links with Romans. So um, go to John chapter 1 if you have a Bible with you. If not, grab one out of the rack around you, and uh, you can follow along on the screen as well. If you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back, in the table back there. You, Take one with you when you leave this morning. There's two essential components of New Hope and that we've been striving towards since the day we launched in 2007. And these essential components, I'm, I'm thinking pretty much if you're a New Hope person, you're going to agree with. And the first one is this. You see them both on the screen and they're in your notes as well. Number one, God only speaks truth. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. He does. He only speaks truth. That plays into the second one. What you believe about God determines what you do. And you may need to chew on that one for a few minutes. You probably haven't heard that one a lot in the book of Romans as we've been working through it. But it bears out. If you follow that line of thinking, you'll see it plays out in your life. And I'm going to give you an example of that from the Bible right now. Jesus is in a conversation. And in the midst of the conversation, he t declares to the individuals he's speaking to that he's God on earth. Now, these individuals don't have that framework. They don't think of God that way. And so they have an immediate visceral reaction. Watch with me, and you'll see this in John 10, 32. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. See, what you believe about God determines what you do. They did not believe that God would come to earth, especially in the form of a man, and let alone Jesus. And so their visceral reaction was to say, that's not what I believe about God. Therefore, we're going to kill you. What you believe about God determines what you do. It's true in every single avenue of your life if you think it through. It determines who you date, who you marry, the jobs that you will take how you raise your children, where you choose to live. What you believe about God determines what you do. You just think it through and you'll see how that surfaces this morning. So when God says something really, really monumental, we said God only speaks truth. When he says something like, I am the light of the world, that means we really need to understand that because it's not only a reality of who God is, it's also a reality of how it impacts you. I want you to see the way this plays out, because God only speaks truth. What we believe about God determines what we do. So watch how this whole verse plays out in John 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus comes to this planet, and he says, there's some things you need to know about God. And I'm going to explain him to you so that you understand. And among those is that God only speaks truth, and I am truth. You might remember reading him say that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he only speaks truth because he's God. And God goes on to say, whoever follows me, whoever has accepted what Jesus offers, is not only forgiven of their sins, but they get eternal life in exchange. What kind of a deal is that? That is the greatest deal on planet Earth. God takes your sins, and in exchange, He gives you eternal life? That's fantastic, wouldn't you say? But the implication that also goes with that statement that Jesus just made is that it implies that those who do not yet follow Him 
they're still in darkness. And we really need to think that through over these next couple weeks as we're working towards Christmas Eve. A lot of what we're going to be talking about this morning is light versus darkness, and next week the same thing. And I want to understand that as we move into Christmas Eve for some very specific reasons. You're going to see us talking about that this week, next week, and Christmas Eve. So here's how I'm going to challenge you over the next three weeks, to let the massiveness of these truths overwhelm you, that God only speaks truth. And what I believe about God determines what I do and how I respond to that. I especially want to help you with your view of Christmas and the wonder of it. Are you having a hard time getting into what they call the spirit of Christmas this year and the wonder of it? That's no surprise because we get overwhelmed with shopping and we get overwhelmed with how much money we are spending or are not spending and who gets this gift and who gets that. And pretty soon we miss the splendor of what he did by coming to us. So I want to help you with your Christmas wonder. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then we're going to dive into John chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these who have taken this time and dedicated themselves to you to know more about you. It could be any place this morning, but have chosen to be here and want to study your word and know about who they are to you and who you are to them. And the same is true for myself, Father. So we ask that you would speak, that your word would be alive to us that your Holy Spirit would teach us and guide us and show us what you want us to understand, where you need to encourage, Father, and you know each heart here. I pray that you would bring courage, that you would bring encouragement, and where you need to bring conviction, Father, and you need to push us, I pray that you would do that as well. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So a question for you. If, if you were king, how would you come to your people? If you got to be king, how would you arrive and come to your people? Would you want a motorcade? Let's put it in in modern translation. Would you want an advanced team? Would you want a bulletproof car? Would you want secret service agents to run alongside and tell people to get out of the way, move aside, the king's coming? Would you want a carriage? Would you want some trumpeters to herald the arrival of the king? Or would you want people at least just to move aside and move their cars off onto the side and and get out of your way as you move through? We're told the arrival of the King of Kings was announced by a single solitary light in the massive expanse of the blackness of a Middle Eastern sky. One single bright light announcing the King. It seems magnificent, because I've never had a star announce my arrival. I don't know about you. We probably not have had a star announce us. It seems magnificent, but it's only magnificent to those who are dialed into it. We're told that Herod even had to be told that there was a star. Most didn't even notice that it was there or that it was significant. So God levels us with John in chapter 1 and verse 14 by making this powerful statement, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if we're going to be honest with each other, we're going to read a verse like that, and we're going to say, it kind of seems stale. Does that seem like old news to you, a little redundant? Like, I've read that a hundred plus times since I learned to read. I see it on Christmas cards all the time. It's just not new. Well, the reality of it is it's world-shattering. 
and my mind is taxed beyond its capacity to grasp it. I know that I continue to try and measure it in this lifetime, and it will fuel my worship in eternity. I don't know if you've stopped to think about the reality of that, but when you read the book of Revelation and you see how people are praising God in eternity, they're saying things like, worthy is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. Well, they're talking about the reality that he came to us, that he came to rescue us. So it's going to fuel your worship in eternity. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Nothing like this ever happened before. The arrival of God in this form, yet how do you describe it? Well, what you find as you go into the book of John is John doesn't attempt to capture a single moment. What he does is he gives descriptors. Let me explain to you what I mean. Um, Some of you know that I like to fish, and occasionally I'm able to get away to distant locations and fish. And A few years back, I was fishing in Alaska. And my cousin has a, a fishing vessel up there, and we go out onto the North Pacific. And um, his vessel is pretty big, about 55 feet long or so, and maybe a little less than that. And when we were fishing, he said, looking in the distance, I see the back of some whales rolling. And he said, get your cameras ready. So we're watching, and sure enough, we start seeing this pod of whales, and their backs keep surfacing out of the water. They're just rolling. And soon they turned, and they're coming toward us. And my cousin said, Get ready, you guys. And so I went up on the very top of the boat, standing on the roof, and I had my camera in my hand. And we didn't know because they disappeared for a few moments where they were going to surface next. And in that moment, while I'm looking for them, one breached out of the water and came smashing down with a crash, water spraying all over the place, and you can hear the air blowing from the spouts. My cousin turned to me and he said, tell me you got that. You got that, right? Well, no, I didn't. I dropped my camera down because I was in such awe. You would have too. It was overwhelming. And the reality is it wouldn't have mattered if I captured it because the camera can't taste the sea salt and it can't sense the ocean breeze and it can't capture the surrounding of the ruggedness of that environment. In that same way, John does not attempt to capture the brilliance of this moment. He just gives descriptors. So when you come to John 1, verse 14, this mind-boggling statement is made, and the Word became flesh. And how do you describe it? Just follow it out the way that he describes it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you've got your Bible open this morning, you might want to write in the margin next to that, this is the most concise statement of the incarnation. You won't find anything more concise in the Bible. It takes you back to verse 1. Just think with me what verse 1 says in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. See, verse 14 and verse 1 are linked. He says, and that Word, that Word is a person. You begin to understand it's an entity. He's not just talking about the written Word. He calls the Word God. The Word is Jesus. And he says the Word became flesh, and it's staggering. Eternity enters time. The invisible becomes visible, and God uncloaks himself. And when he uses the word became, it doesn't mean that he stopped being one thing in order to become another thing. 
You'll notice in your notes this morning, if you pulled them out of the bulletin, that there's a lot of Greek words today. I'm not apologizing for that. It's just going to really help you understand it. The first word I want to show you is the word sarx, S-A-R-X. When John uses that, he uses it very deliberately because he's talking about the reality that Jesus put on meat, muscle structure, bone, blood vessels, skin. He's using a very graphic term here when he uses the word sarx. That's the word for flesh. Just four words, God dressed in skin. Check this, the very skin he called into existence. Then he formed man out of the dust of the ground, and then he crawls into that. And it's raw, and it's an expression of reality. The word became a biological body. So catch the implication of that. That he actually became flesh means he's fully human. You can't partially put on muscle. You can't partially put on blood vessels. You can't partially have human emotion. That means he walked in the same struggles that you walk in. Whatever you carried in the door with you today of relationship issues, whatever physical issue you might be going through, Jesus has inhabited a human body and he's walked in your struggles. But even though he became fully man, he remains fully God according to the Bible. See, becoming man doesn't mean his deity is diminished. He didn't have to stop being one thing in order to become another. According to what I understand as I work through the book of John, his glory somehow is temporarily veiled. Somehow he voluntarily restrains it. He had to do that. We couldn't look at him in his full glory. We'd be incinerated. No man can look at God and live. So God cloaks himself. He veils himself. He had to do that. According to Philippians 2.6, it says it this way. This is how it happened, the best we understand it. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Deity and humanity somehow inexpressibly linked and joined together, producing the God-man, Jesus the Christ, Yeshua, Mashiach, never before, never repeated, and it's an absolute mystery, and you just have to let it be because we can't explain it. All we can do is accept God's Word when He says, and He only speaks truth, in Colossians 2, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We just have to accept it. It's God's reality. Don't get too hung up on that. I want to go into a really meaningful statement that John makes in verse 14 when he says, He dwelt among us. And we've already said the incarnation is utterly beyond human comprehension. But God did give word pictures like I talked about with Alaska and the, and the whale breaching out of the water. Here's a word picture. He uses the word dwelt. And when you think of Israel in, in the Old Testament being chased out of the land of Egypt by God. God allowed them to move out. You think of a people who were tenting because for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness and we're told the word skenuo is used to describe that thought of dwelt because there's a thought of encamping or tenting. God actually tented with the people of Israel at one point he told them to build a tabernacle, and he moved in among them, and he dwelt within the tabernacle, so they're tenting, and he's tenting, 
And now we're told that God comes to earth again and he tents with us. Have you ever gone camping with someone other than your family? It's pretty raw, isn't it? It's pretty intimate. There's a, a couple that attends here in the Saturday night service, um, Jerry and Diane Smith. And yesterday we had a funeral for uh, Joanne Williams, and Joanne and John have both passed away this last year. But Jerry and Diane went camping with John and Joanne Williams a few years back. And Joanne and John loved that camping experience and talked about it a lot. But Jerry had described it to me a few years ago, and I didn't really appreciate it until yesterday. He mentioned it again. He said when they went camping together, they went for five weeks together in the same trailer. Can you imagine? Yeah, right? Okay. See, when you're thinking of camping intimately, that's what you're thinking of. You hear sounds you don't normally hear. You experience emotions you don't normally experience. You hear people have conversations you wouldn't normally be privy to. That's the imagery that's going on here. It's raw. It's real. It's intimate. So Eugene Peterson captured it really well. He wrote the the message. It's a a paraphrase of the Bible. And he said it this way, the word moved into the neighborhood. It's a good way of saying it. I get that. Did you know that in eternity, God will camp with you again? God's going to tent with you? Revelation captures that thought. Look at what was written in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, there's the tent. Behold the tabernacle of God. It's among men, and he will skenuo. He will dwell among them. So in the first century, God puts on skin and bones, and he camps at Bethlehem State Park. He moves into the neighborhood, and he's among his people, and he pitches his tent. Now, don't stop there. Go with me further into verse 14. And John writes, and we saw his glory. And I think the we here is the apostles. I think he's got himself and his friends in mind in that particular moment, because he's talking about the fact that the reality is they saw Jesus unveiled They saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah show up, and Jesus turns on the afterburners, and he effervesces white. James and John and Peter are just driven to the ground. Well, they got to see also the glory of God in the midst of the miracles. Water turned into wine, lepers healed, dead called back from the grave. There's glory in that, but the greatest glory, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter morning. The glory of God put on display. See, Jesus displayed God's glory with a clarity that was never before understood. And then John goes on to say in verse 14, He is the only begotten from the Father. And I want to stay on this for just a minute because that is greatly misunderstood. There's individuals in your world that live among us who in society would tell you that Jesus is a created being. He's just a good man, but Scripture stands in opposition to that. False teaching will tell you that it it would say that this is saying right here that he's begotten from the Father, meaning he was born a man. That is absolutely not what it's saying. They're saying there's a time when he did not exist and God called him into existence, that he was a created being and he just became a prophet. That's where Islam's at on Jesus. They would say that he's a created being, a good man, a, a prophet. It's absolutely not saying that. The word that I want you to see here, and it's a very important word, and one of the reasons you needed to see the Greek language is what John chose to use here is the word monogenes. 
Monogenes means one of a kind, unique. That's what begotten actually means. The only begotten of the Father means unique to that individual. He is the only one. It does not imply that Jesus was created. It's not referring to his origin. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and read about Abraham and his offspring, you'll see that Isaac is called the monogenes of Abraham. Why? Because he's the son of the covenant. He's the only one. He's unique. Well, that title is used here of Jesus, not implying that he's created, but he's the only one. And then John goes on in verse 14 to say, he's not only that, he's full of grace and truth. And these are huge implications for your own life and how you live out your day. These are the biggies of Christianity. And so it has profound implications. Jesus is the full expression of grace. What is grace? Well, it's unmerited favor, getting what you didn't deserve. God giving you what you didn't have title to. And then we're told he's the full expression of truth. And if you follow the Greek language, this word full, it actually means to be drenched in it. He's soaked. It's just dripping off him. So John's using a really powerful description here when he says, all truth is found in him. He's full of it. That's why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am truth. Interesting illustration of this. Jesus has been arrested. He's standing in Pilate's palace. And Pilate, for whatever reason, decides to make small talk. I think he's probing, just trying to figure out the personality of Jesus. You see this conversation in John 18. John 18, 37, Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What you believe about God determines what you do next. If you don't believe that Jesus is all truth, meaning everything that he says, it's pretty difficult to be a Christian. Pilate obviously didn't believe him because he said to him, what is truth? Truth is standing right in front of him, but what you believe about God determines what you do next. And so Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. If you don't believe that Jesus is all truth, everything that he says, it is really difficult to be a Christian. But what amazing assurance you get when you realize that the one who is all truth says to you, I got you, you're mine, and nothing can change that. Let me show you that on the screen. Ephesians 1.13, it says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the one who is truth, that one can be completely trusted in everything because God does not lie. And that's why I said it has huge implications for your life and how you carry out your day when truth shows up and says, I'm the light of the world, and everyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in light. I don't want to get hung up on that a long time because I'll rabbit trail, and I want to go with you to verse 16, so let's go to that. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Anybody here received God's grace this morning? All right, we're there, right? So John's just giving a really gracious statement. Matter of fact, not to make a pun, but I think this is one of the most gracious verses in the Bible. Grace upon grace. 
How do you describe what God has done for you? John's just saying, there's abundant supply. It's never exhausted. Even when you listen to hope, even when you think you've wore God out. And I know there's a temptation. In our humanness, we think, whoa, I just crossed the line. I've gone too far. Mm. I think I've gone to God one too many times about this issue. God says, don't stop. I've got grace for you, and it's dripping off from me. I'm full of it. I'm soaked in it. It's never-ending. I've got an abundant supply. Grace is limitless. It's a never-ending flow. There's a verse in the Bible in Ephesians 2 that actually talks about the reality that it's present now, and God's going to use it as an ornament in your life in the future. He's going to put you on display. Let me show you this from Ephesians 2, verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, it's talking about now, something that's going on now. It's a reality. But also, in the ages to come, in the future, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing, that means overwhelming, the surpassing riches of his grace. The word is actually hooperbalo when it says super over, overflowing. When you think of getting a full cup of coffee or a cup of hot chocolate, and it's so full it's spilling over the brim, the saucer has to catch it, or maybe with the palm of your hand. That's the imagery. The cup is overflowing. It's overflowing to the degree that God's going to put you on display to display to everyone the surpassing riches of His grace. How? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, life with Jesus is just an expression of God's grace. Another after another after another after another after another. It's never exhausted. If you know Jesus... You know grace, amen? He's full of grace, and he's full of truth. Let's finish it out. Verses 17 and 18, the last two I wanted to look at with you this morning. It says, for the law has been given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Now, John's just been pretty definitive He's saying, you can't know God. You want to know God this morning? You can't know God unless you know Jesus. There's no way for you to understand him without knowing Jesus because he says grace and truth, they're realized in Jesus. The other Greek word that's in your notes, genomai, you're not going to see it on the screen, is actually talking about something that's being assembled. The pieces are being put together. Anybody here love to do puzzles, especially around Christmas time? A few of you sheepishly putting your hands up. My wife is right there with you. She loves to do puzzles. Now, I'm sure in the next two weeks, there's going to be a table that's spread out in our house, and uh, around Christmas time, she likes to work on them, especially between Christmas and New Year. There's probably going to be a 500 or a 1,000-piece, or God forbid, a 1,500-piece puzzle that's spread out. Now, I'm totally good with the borders, right? I'm okay with that. But what maniac created the inner pieces, I don't know. Last year, Lori did a puzzle that was a field of yellow daisies on a green bed with just, thankfully, a little blue sky at the top. I was good with helping with the border, but I'm out after that. I, 
It takes so much patience to put the pieces together. But that's the word that's being used here when he says grace and truth, they're realized, the pieces of the puzzle, they're put together, they're assembled with Jesus' arrival. And the impact of this is monumental. Because living on this planet prior to Jesus' arrival, the fullness of God's grace was not known. It's unknown. It's absolutely not experienced because it's the law. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Fear the Lord your God. But yet they heard that God was gracious because when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he said to God, I've done everything that you've asked me to do. I've appeared before Pharaoh. Would you at least show me yourself? I want to see you. God says, no one can see me and live, but here's what I'll do for you, Moses. I will pass by you, and when I do that, I will declare myself. So God puts his hand over Moses' face so Moses doesn't get incinerated, and he declares, the Lord, the Lord God merciful, long-suffering to a thousand generations, gracious, really? Because we don't see it. They're living in a time when they couldn't put grace together. They couldn't, they heard that God was gracious. He declared it. So Jesus comes along and he makes it visible with a clarity never before seen. Jesus puts God on display. Think of the woman at the well, grace. What about the lady dragged out into the street? People are ready to stone her. Jesus said, any of you that doesn't have sin, you can throw the first stone. Grace. What about the thief on the cross? This day you'll be with me in paradise. Grace. Jesus puts grace on display. Now we see why God says, I am gracious. And then John sums it up with this really intimate expression. He says this one who's one of a kind, who puts on flesh and blood and walks among us and camps with us, he's at the bosom of the Father. And if you've read the word bosom before in the Bible and you're not sure what that is, that means sitting so close, you're right side by side, hip to hip, like conjoined together. It's actually linked with verse 1 again. Just hear verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In theology, that's called prostantheon, the closeness, the oneness, the intimacy of the two in relationship. John's using that same imagery here when he says, at the bosom of the Father. It's expressing the relationship of oneness. He says, that one, that one has explained God. You and I see God in nature, and we read about God in history, and we read about His power but we can't see God himself. So the Bible makes it really clear when it says Jesus, he exegeted God. The, the word exegesis, it means to declare. It's, it's kind of the preaching style that I do here. To exegete a piece of scripture is to declare it. That's what Jesus does about God. He's the only one qualified to unfold God to man. He interpreted God for us. So you got somebody in your life that's asking the question, What's God like? Show them Jesus. Point to Jesus. He's the one who explains God. The God who cannot be known, he became known because Jesus explained him. So this thing, this incarnation that we're talking about, the arrival of God in, in a way no one could have ever imagined is accomplished by God in Jesus. I'm sure, like you do in your life, I've got people in my life who look at these things and would say, that, 
is just a fable. That's a myth. That's a creation of man. Some old dudes living a long time ago got together and decided to write a storybook. Well, I would have to say, I have no surprise that people respond that way because Scripture says those without Jesus are living in darkness. No wonder people find the gospel hard to believe. The realities of what God is describing here surpass human understanding. God puts on skin. The Almighty arrives as a baby and lays in a bed and has to be fed and have his diapers changed like any other baby. And then fast forward and you find him as an adult man walking the streets of the Middle East. And God says, there is no deception in this. I'm not lying to you. I can't lie. God cannot lie. See, there's nothing in man-created fiction that is as fantastic as this truth. And the more you think about it, the more overwhelming it gets. But once the incarnation is realized and seized on as reality, confusion dissolves. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you at some point in your life came to terms with this issue. You crossed the threshold of God becoming man. You can't be a believer in Jesus and not accept the reality that God is Jesus. You had to have accepted, you had to have crossed that threshold, and God says there's no deception in this. I'm fully God, full of grace and truth, and it's intimately woven together into one person. It's actually the first step in believing, the first step of accepting who Jesus is. Now, to bring closure to this, I need to go backwards with you. It just take two minutes. I'm going to explain to you what I mean. I want you to let your eyes drift up the page to verse 4. This is for next week, and this is where we're going to go with this description next week. Verse 4 in John chapter 1 actually says, in him was life. Now, we've been talking about light, and we're told that light and life are linked together. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. Now, check this. That John had to actually point out the light. Tells you just how blind people are. And how dark the darkness is, it's a graphic illustration of the world's blindness because only blind people cannot see light. So John had to say, there he is, that's him, because people couldn't recognize it on their own. If you just follow that reasoning out, you understand that when Jesus sat down to teach people and they engaged in conversation, they always thought he was talking about materialistic things. They couldn't put on the spiritual eyes because of the blindness was so great. And they were confused by the things that he's saying. So John says that life is the light of man. Now, that's a match for other verses in the Bible. The Bible is very straightforward about linking verses together. And let me show you an example of that. In 1 John 5.11, it says, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever this has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You and I started out this morning with a reminder that God only speaks truth. He can't lie. And truth says, if you have me, you have life. But if you reject me, you're rejecting life. I'm guessing among an auditorium with this many people in it, there's family and friends represented, co-workers of yours, 
who are still in darkness. They don't have the light of life. They don't have the life that brings light. What we tend to forget as believers in Jesus Christ is we really don't understand how black their darkness is until we relate it to death. If people in your world look really alive to you, and if you were to say to them, you're dead, they're going to think you lost your mind, right? <laughs> what have you been drinking? But if you substitute deadness for blindness, you begin to understand what God's going for here. Life produces light. Light brings the life, and those without Jesus are in darkness. And if they're to see, they've got to have life. So truth comes along, and he says, I'm the light of the world. John 8, 12, follow it out. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But he's not here now. You can't point across the room or across the city and say, there he is. So we've got Jesus, but we don't have Jesus. And I told you I wanted to challenge you to let the massiveness of this reality overwhelm you this Christmas. Truth shows up and says, I'm the light of the world. But then truth shows up and says, you are the light. Matthew 5.14. He's not here now. But yet you belong to him, and you follow him, and you say, Jesus is mine. And that same one says, okay, now you're the light. I'm going to be gone. So I'm asking you this question. How's your light bulb doing these days? Are you burning so bright that you're drawing people into the kingdom? Is Jesus shining you through you to such a degree that people would say, I want some of that? Man, that looks magnificent. How do I get that? Is, is your bulb burning that bright, shining so bright that you're drawing people to Christ? Or is your ornament a little tarnished? Maybe the things that have gone on in your life have done so much damage to you that your bulb is dim. Maybe some of your own failures, your experiences, have caused that to just kind of fade a little bit. I don't normally leave things hanging, but I'm going to do that this week. I'm going to leave that hang there as we talk about the reality of you being the light of the world next week. What did God mean by that? What are the things that are getting in the way of your light being fully bright for the purposes of the kingdom? See, I'm convinced that what you believe about God determines what you do next about that issue. And how you respond to it will determine what you believe about God's grace and God's mercy. So I'm going to ask you to just pray with me right now about the reality of the things that we've talked about and how God can shine through you more brightly. Let's pray together. Father, your word declares that we're supposed to be so bright that we would put our light on a stand so that all the house can see it. And in response, we're all supposed to um, let our good works be seen before men so that they will glorify our Father. 
I, I would ask that you would help us to understand the reality of what that means for our life. I'm praying for every man and woman and every student in this auditorium right now, Father, and those watching online, that we would really stop and calculate what you meant when you said we're the light of the world. Because you don't lie, you always speak truth. And what we believe about you determines what we do, so we're asking you to drive that home for us. I thank you for your grace and your mercy and that you're dripping with it and that you give us new beginnings. So whatever sense of conviction we need right now, Father, I pray that you would use that to push us onward so we would look more like you. Drive us to that, Father. I pray for encouragement for those who need it and for conviction for those who need that. In the power of your Holy Spirit, through the name of the one who redeemed us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.